The Hamlet Podcast, episode 12. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. This play really does race along. We are 12 episodes in and already we've reached the play's sixth scene. We've moved to the outside of Macbeth's castle and now Duncan enters, accompanied by all his retinue. Malcolm and Donald Bain, his sons, Banquo, Lennox, Macduff, Ross, Angus, and any and all various attendants. It's a full royal arrival. But of course this is a military one, which might go some way to explaining why there are no women here at all. The stage directions mention torches and hoboys. These are not related to the modern oboe, a different musical instrument altogether, but they're a commanding instrument that announces the arrival of the king. Duncan himself speaks first, and he's quick to comment on the vibe of Castle Macbeth. He says, This castle hath a pleasant seat. The air nimbly and sweetly recommends itself unto our gentle senses. This is the direct opposite of the fog and filthy air out on the heath. The castle is well appointed, he's saying, and has a pleasant seat or location. The very air around it seems sweet and delicate. Given how Lady Macbeth just counselled her husband to look like the flower and be the serpent under it, it's very unfortunate that Duncan is so innocent. He's judging only by appearance, only from the surface, and he's getting everything wrong. Unfortunately, Banquo doesn't do much better. This guest of summer, the temple-haunting Martlet, does approve by his loved mansionry that the heaven's breath smells wooingly here. No jutty, frieze, buttress, nor coin of vantage, but this bird hath made his pendant bed and procreant cradle. Where they most breed and haunt, I have observed, the air is delicate. Birds in Shakespeare are often used as a sign of whether to trust a place or not. Again, We've just heard Lady Macbeth describing the ravens around her battlements in her rather scary scene before this, but Banquo spots a martlet, renowned for making its nest in nice, soft places. He describes it as the temple-haunting martlet. They're often to be seen in churches, places of peace and repose. Banquo senses that even this most sensitive of birds approves of this castle, since clearly they are nesting here. The air he describes as heaven's breath, and it smells wooingly here. He lists all of the architectural features. There's no jutty, frieze or buttress, no spot at all in which he can't see a martlet nest. The language is very rich with images of sleep, but more importantly, of procreation here. It's not a nest so much as a pendant bed hanging from this building. It's a procreant cradle, a place for people to rest, but also for baby martlets to be conceived. Banquo, apparently a bird watcher, can confirm that wherever you see martlets breeding and haunting, as in being present rather than being a ghost, the air is good. Shakespeare is so good at this kind of stuff. He has introduced one set of images to us and made us trust them, and now we are wincing as we think we know more than the characters on stage. These men have all arrived and think it's a lovely place and there's lovely birds and they're going to have a lovely night. And we know otherwise. It's a great way to build tension and keep us emotionally invested in what's happening. 
And now Lady Macbeth enters. And we're going to get more of this excessively polite and formal complimentary language. Duncan, the king, naturally speaks first. See, see our honoured hostess. The love that follows us sometime is our trouble, which still we thank as love. Herein I teach you how you shall bid God yield us for your pains and thank us for your trouble. It's so over the top, he's meeting himself on the way back. He greets his honoured hostess, Lady Macbeth, and then his point is something to the effect that he's being a nuisance showing up at her castle and wants to apologise. He's acknowledging that as his subjects they have to show him love, but that sometimes it's a trouble. And then he appears to make a joke, suggesting that really he's showing the Macbeths how they should ask God to punish their foes rather than reward their loved ones. Let's try and listen to it again. The love that follows us sometime is our trouble, which still we thank as love. Herein I teach you how you shall bid God yield us for your pains and thank us for your trouble. And if you think that was tortuous, here's Lady Macbeth's reply. All our service, in every point twice done and then done double, were poor and single business to contend against those honours, deep and broad wherewith your majesty loads our house. For those of old, and the late dignities heaped up to them, we rest your hermits. For starters, that was all one sentence. What she is saying is that if they did everything to welcome him twice, and then did twice as much again, it would still be nothing in comparison with all of the honours that Duncan has heaped upon their house by coming to visit, not to mention Macbeth's recent promotion and various previous graces. For all of these, she says, they are his hermits. The sense here is of isolated ascetics who spend their time in remote places offering up prayers. So they're his humble servants and they'll say prayers for him and they're so grateful. She's really extraordinary, spewing out this smooth and friendly thread of platitudes, speaking this polite language with barely a pause for thought, let alone for breath. All our service, in every point twice done and then done double, were poor and single business to contend against those honours deep and broad wherewith your majesty loads our house. For those of old, and the late dignities heaped up to them, we rest your hermits. Listen out for the word double when it appears, or indeed any kind of multiplying language, because it sounds rather like, you guessed it, the witches and how they make their magic. It's a little bit of an echo of something that will come later, but you heard it here first. In a way, Lady Macbeth's ability to speak like this is terrifying. We in the audience want to scream and tell poor Duncan not to set foot in her castle. But we already know what's coming for him. So he asks, understandably, for Macbeth. Where's the Thane of Cawdor? We coursed him at the heels and had a purpose to be his purveyor, but he rides well. And his great love, sharp as his spur, hath holp him to his home before us. Fair and noble hostess, we are your guest tonight. Now that the most excessive courtesies have already been offered, they start talking a little bit more like humans. So Duncan is wondering where Macbeth is. They were travelling almost as fast as he was, and were almost thinking that they might reach the castle first and be the purveyor of the news that the king was coming. 
This would, of course, be very stressful, since the purveyor was supposed to get the head start and let the host know that company was en route, so that they could get things ready. Happily, Macbeth did arrive first. He rides well, says Duncan, and was clearly motivated by his great love and his desire to see her after all this time, and that's why he reached home before the king and his men. Another new image is introduced here. Duncan jokes that Macbeth's desire to see the lady was the spur that motivated him. In case you don't know, a spur is what riders wear to kick their horses and encourage them to go faster. This is a violent image when you think of it. It's these little studs on a rider's feet that stab a horse's sides to keep them moving. This image will also return later, so don't forget it. Macbeth is home, perhaps scrubbing off the blood from the battlefield, and so Duncan is satisfied at being greeted by the lady of the castle. Fair and noble hostess, he says. The word fair is here, again. He will be their guest tonight. And Lady Macbeth replies, Your servants ever have theirs, themselves, and what is theirs, in Comte, to make their audit at your highness' pleasure, still to return your own. Now, this language is complicated in a whole other way. This is financial. Lady Macbeth is giving Duncan more or less the run of the castle, in earshot of his whole company, remember, saying that his servants, basically everyone with the king, can have good credit here, and can do whatever they can and please to ensure his highness' pleasure. This will be a play about revenge and payment and audits and balances, so it's definitely of interest that Lady Macbeth says this here. She seems like a very magnanimous hostess, welcoming everyone, insisting that nothing will be charged to them and there will be no debts to be paid in the morning. Duncan is delighted, as of course will everyone else be, and he says, Give me your hand. Conduct me to mine host. We love him highly and shall continue our graces towards him. By your leave, hostess. Duncan is clearly delighted and takes her hand to lead her inside the castle. She will bring him to Macbeth, conduct me to mine host. So Duncan has the highest respect for his cousin Macbeth. He loves him highly and will continue to show him all this grace and favour. And so off they go, by her leave, into the palace. And that, dear listener, is the end of Act 1, Scene 6. It seems like a very small scene, but given the number of new traps that Shakespeare has laid in the language and the imagery that we're starting to hear and repeat and hear in new ways, it's very important. So if you're ever doing the play, do not cut this scene. It is on my mind that I had suggested we'd have a bonus episode at the end of each scene, but I confess I got a little bit sidetracked working on a huge opera project for the last couple of months. Rest assured, there will be bonus content coming your way in the weeks and months ahead. For now, happy Halloween, and look no further than this play for horrors, witches, scary recipes and spirits for these darkest nights of the autumn. I hope you're keeping up with the podcast on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, or indeed on Instagram, where the handle is at hamletpodcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.